Dave here. Before launching into the next episode, I wanted to take a moment to pause and acknowledge the fact that we recently lost another key contributor to the circus and street theater world. On October 19, 2017, Will Chamberlain, director and chief executive of the Belfast Community Circus School and producer of the Festival of Fools Street Theater Festival, passed away. An online article from Belfast Live collected a number of quotes from various sources that I thought were worth sharing here. Seedhead Arts tweeted, There's a massive hole in the Belfast art scene. Will Chamberlain has left us and we're just gutted. Thinking of all his clan. Art Matters Northern Ireland posted, Our colleague and friend, the redoubtable, utterly unique, and tirelessly passionate Will Chamberlain passed away last night surrounded by his family circle. All of us in the arts deeply mourn his passing. And the Oya Music Center added, He was an absolute force of nature and an immense presence in the art sector. He cared deeply. We will miss him. I had the absolute privilege of working with Will at the 2017 Festival of Fools and was touched by the depth of his commitment and his belief that circus and street theater can be used in a positive and meaningful way to impact people's lives and an entire community. Will Chamberlain was the sort of man who definitely used his superpowers for good, and he will be missed. All right, let's get to it. Someone who had seen me juggling, like I was practicing constantly, someone saw me practicing juggling like on the side of the road somewhere or at a restaurant. And they're like, oh, there's a festival in Hyannis. You should go street perform. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds like I would be good at it. So I thought street performing at the time was walking around the street performing, just walking around. Because all I had ever really done was walk around gigs. So I brought my clubs to this festival and there's thousands of people walking around. And I had like a bow tie and I was juggling my clubs. And I thought, this is street performing, just walking around. I didn't understand the concept of a show and a hat pass. Right. And was there no example of it at that festival either? No, not until the very end of the day. Right. After I'd been there for a couple hours, you know, walking around. I looked down the street and there was this sort of circle of people cheering. And I'm like, what is that? And then I saw a club fly in the air. And I'm like, oh, there's a juggler over there. And I walked over and it was Cyrus Kosky. Right. Uncle Fun, I don't know what he called himself then. Uh, this dude with sweatpants and running shoes and a stained t-shirt. He had a gym bag full of props and torches and a big tall unicycle. And he had a crowd of people. And he was working them and he was doing lines and he had volunteers and he needed help getting on his tall unicycle and then he did this whole like torch thing on a unicycle. And jumped down and then he put his hat out and I just watched everybody walk up with money and fill his hat and I couldn't believe my eyes. So that's what street performing is. Right. And then I walked up to him after and I'm like, hey, I'm a juggler. My name's Jim. Like, who are you? And, you know, knowing Cyrus, he was pretty cold to me. I don't know if he thought I was going to like try and do a show next to him or I don't, he just was like, Hey, you know, nice to meet you kid. See you later. Right. And you know, I was asking questions, but he didn't want to answer really. So I kind of was like, well now, at least I've seen how it's done now. Now I know what to do. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. 
There's a moment in Episode 7 of the podcast where Dick Finkel is explaining to Robert Nelson how he found the performers for his festival. He mentions tapping into the Boston Mafia, the elite performers who worked regularly at Faneuil Hall and Harvard Square. Now, all pitches seem to shape the shows that play them, as performers typically adapt to what the local audiences respond to most. So acts from Boston feel like acts from Boston. Jim the Juggler, who ended up becoming The Jim Show, ended up in Boston after college in the early 90s, and was shaped not only by what he saw working for other performers, but also what he brought to the pitch from his pre-Boston personal history. Part inspiration, part innovation, and a lot of learning by doing led to a slick package that ended up impressing audiences, peers, and festival producers alike. Now, it's worth noting that many people from the street theater community will know Jim as the guy who ran Performers.net, or PNET as it became known, which gave many of us the ability to connect via the internet well before Facebook ever existed. That, however, is a topic worthy of another entire episode. For this interview, Mike Wood wanted to focus on Jim's personal journey as a performer, some of the key mentors he encountered, venues he played, and innovations he brought to the circle in a life filled with so many great stories from the pitch. Wait, is this recording? It is now recording. Before we do this, can we talk about what's off limits? Okay. There's nothing off limits. Okay, great. So I'll just make a list of all the nothing. That's off. <laughs> um, so here I am with Jim in his lovely home at his lovely kitchen table. And uh, hi, Jim. Hey, Mike. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Good time. Nice to see you. Good to be here at my house. <laughs> Thanks for coming all the way from Canada. Yes, I'm very foreign right now. So we've been talking all weekend about, well, everything's a weekend to me now, but it's actually, <laughs> what is it today, Wednesday? Today's Tuesday. Is it? Yes. Are you sure? It is Tuesday, August something, the year of 2016. Right. 23rd. August 23rd. 23rd. Whew. Awkward. So anyway, I wanted to talk to Jim about Jim's own personal history with street performing because it is long and interesting, and I think we should start at the beginning because I don't know what came first, your massive juggling skills or your awesome performing desire. Well, performing for me started way before street performing. Right, okay. My first performing was when I was a volunteer in a magic show. This, it all sounds like the same story. Like, I was a volunteer in a magic show, and it right. inspired me to become a performer. <laughs> but it's true. I was a volunteer, a kid volunteer, in a little magic show at Bush Gardens in Virginia when right. I was like seven or six. And I got off stage, and I said, Mom, I want to be a magician. So she enrolled me in this little kid magic workshop thing for kids after school program like yep. learn magic from a real magician and it was probably some like 17 year old kid teaching kids magic but to me it was like this big adult guy you know yep. so i went and i took some classes and i learned like a handful of gimmicky you know store-bought magic tricks and then i went to my class when i was like in third grade and i did a magic show for my class and i was seven years old right it was like, okay, I actually wrote jokes down and had like a piece of paper with one-liners written down hanging on the inside of the table and I did the magic show and I was, every time I do a trick, I would bend over to pick up my next trick and read a joke off the paper. So I was like an act. Were the jokes related to what you were doing? They or? were just from a joke book. They were okay, just like, right. I, you know, stupid kid jokes. <laughs> like dumb, I don't, I can't even think of one right now off the top of my head, but just dumb kid puns, you know, right. that you would say from a joke book. So I did this little show, and it was like, that was it. It kind of stood alone as my one and only magic show of my life. 
And that was when I was seven. So then fast forward to high school and I was a total bike nerd. Like I loved bikes and BMX bikes and I used to constantly build bikes. And so I was always doing BMX style stuff. Got into freestyle riding. So I was always doing ramp. We built some ramps and flatland tricks and all that stuff. And is this before BMX really existed as BMX, or were you really like those first generation BMX bikes? Or this is in 1982, 83. Okay. So it actually BMX was a thing, but I was just doing it because I liked riding my bike in the woods, you know. Right. And I had an old bike that I kind of painted black, and I just was kind of mimicking a motorcycle. Right. I didn't know a BMX was a thing. I didn't know it was called BMX. It was just I'd ride my bike in the woods, and we'd make sweet jumps and. You know, we would do kid stuff on a bike. So then one day I was at a convenience store and there was a magazine rack and there was a a BMX magazine on the rack. I was probably 12 or 13 and it was BMX Action magazine. And I just picked it up and said, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, there's a whole thing called BMX. Like yeah. you can actually buy a bike that's a BMX bike, and I just had to have a bike. So I saved paper route money, and I bought a bike, and I started learning. Well, my dad wouldn't let me race. Like there were at that point, it got to the point where there were actually like organized BMX races in the region and all that. My dad wouldn't let me race, so then I started just doing tricks. I learned about freestyle riding and got into BMX freestyle. This is '84, and Some friends of mine and I said, hey, let's start a team and we'll do shows because we had seen professional show and we went out and we got a sound system. We built a ramp that was a portable ramp we could put on a trailer. We got a trailer. I was 14 and my friend was 15 and I had, we had two other guys that were 17 and one of them had a car. Right. And it was like an old little Honda hatchback car that we attached the trailer hitch to with a trailer. And we built like a giant eight-foot wooden quarter pipe. The ramp was bigger than the car. <laughs> and we would drive around to like stores and fairs and in schools and camps and do like a little hour-long BMX show with ramps. And I was 15 at the time now, and I became the announcer for the show. And looking back, it's crazy to me. I was like driving around in the summertime with a 17-year-old kid or 18-year-old kid and two other guys. We'd set up a show. We'd set up the mics and I would like, hey, everybody, welcome to the show. It's, you know, and I was the guy who was the announcer. But then I would go out and ride and do my bit. And then we'd have a finale. It was like a whole show. We had safety talk and like it was like a real professional thing. We were charging like a hundred bucks for a show. Sure. And four guys would drive two hours and we'd split a hundred dollars. <laughs> but it was enough to buy like new handlebars for my bike every couple months and whatever. So it was great. So that was my first performing like real I was professionally performing on a bike when I was fifteen. I did competitions back then and uh, you know, it was pretty good at that and then went away to college and the team folded because everyone went their separate ways and that's where my neighbor in college my next door dorm neighbor walked in my room one day and said hey do you know how to juggle and I had learned how to juggle back when I learned to do magic tricks so when I was like seven years old eight years old I taught myself how to juggle with some bean bags because the magician that was teaching the magic tricks said 
every magician has to know how to juggle. And I thought I was going to be a magician, so I'm like, well, I have to learn how to juggle. Sure. So I learned how to do three a three-ball cascade, and then I never did a cascade again until this day in college when my friend walked up and said, hey, do you know how to juggle? And I said, yeah. And I picked up three balls and was like, hey, I can still do it. Right. And then he said, how about four? And I'm like, well... Is that even a thing? Like, who can do more? Is that than, even possible? Who can do more than three? And he picked up four balls, and he's like, "Look, it's four. And I'm like, "No way!" And then he pulled out a devil stick and some clubs, and then I was like, "Okay, new hobby. Let's right. do this." And that was it. I went out and I bought new props. There was a UMass juggling club. This is UMass Amherst. Right. In and you just went to a store and bought. No, I ordered it all okay. from, from uh, back then. There was uh, he had a Brian Dubé catalog. Yeah, this I remember that. That was a really sweet mail order awesome catalog. Awesome catalog. Yeah. yeah, this was nineteen eighty eight. That's pre internet, if you're keeping track. Oh yes, <laughs> this was mail order catalog. Like yeah. I actually sending away. I think I I actually sent a check to Brian Dubé because I didn't have a credit card in college. It was like I had to mail a check to New York with a list of things I wanted. And then two weeks later, in the mail, in my dorm, I got a box of clubs and balls. and Awesome. And that was, so 1988, UMass Juggling Club. I was practicing just every chance I got, learning tricks, learning skills. And I, I got pretty good at three and four objects and Diablo, Devil Sticks, things like that. You're just goofing around at the club like the, at, with well, other university students? I, I think what it was was there was a guy who was better than me, and I was just trying to learn the tricks he could do. You know, there right. was there was a guy who could do five, so I wanted to try and learn how to do five. And then, you know, my neighbor, Howard, he taught me how to pass clubs. He taught me how to do four. I don't think he really could do five, but he was a good passer. He was good at club passing and really good at devil stick. And then this other guy, Travis... Travis Bear. He was one of the better jugglers in the club. He was a really good passer, and he was a performer. So Travis actually did shows, like in a circus. There was a local circus, too, the Mime Circus in Springfield. I started to get to know all these organizations around my region. This is in western Massachusetts. So Travis would do shows, and I knew he was a performer, but I just never thought I would be a performer. It was just a hobby in college because I was studying, and you know. It, so one day Travis came up to me and he said, "You know, he's like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow?" This was like on a Friday afternoon, and I said, uh, "It's Saturday. I don't know. I'm in college. Nothing, you know." <laughs> uh, and he said, "You want to do a birthday party? It's a perform, you know, to do a show." And I'm like, "I I can't do a show." And he's like, "Look." You know how to do devil sticks. You know how to do three balls, four balls, five balls. I'm going to teach you how to make balloon animals. You're going to do this party. And I'm like, it's tomorrow. What do you mean? And he's like, look, it's 50 bucks, and you just have to drive over to this place and walk in and do a 10-minute show and make all the kids a balloon animal and then say goodbye and leave. So it sounded easy, and he taught me how to make a dog and a butterfly, you know, on right. out of balloons and a giraffe, whatever. And, and it's just a, a dog with a, a long dog neck. With a long neck. <laughs> so I learned like four balloon animals. He gave me a handful of balloons. And he's like, okay, first you have to go to the balloon store and buy helium balloons because every kid gets a balloon. So I had to go and spend 10 bucks for 10 balloons. Then I drove to the gig, walked in. It was a five year old's birthday party. I did three balls, four balls, five balls, finished up with devil sticks. 
and then was like took a bow and the kids are like yay and then made each one a balloon animal and that was my first gig and as i was walking out the door the little five-year-old kid ran up behind me and tugged on my shirt and he said can you come to my birthday next year right and that was it i yep. was like i did a show and the kid liked me yep. and i went back and i said hey i did it he gave me he took a cut of the 50 bucks. I had to pay 10 bucks for the balloons. I wound up making like $25, but that was it. It was my first gig ever. Right. Then I got the bug and I was like, I need to get on stage now. And at college, there's open mic nights, there's coffee houses, there's frat parties, there's things where people need performers to come in. So I did everything I could do. Anytime I could get on stage, I would do you know five minutes. And I was that's when I first started doing Rollabola. I built a Rollabola out of a hardware store tube and a yep. random board and I could stand on a roll of bola and by that time I could do torches and I had a knife and I was starting to get my patter down. Yeah. But was your patter at that point still describing the trick? Yeah. Right. And for my next trick, yeah. I had no concept of a volunteer on stage. I had never seen a street show right. at this point. I was just like, I'm going to do these skills on stage for five minutes, 10 minutes, and people are going to clap. And then things would go wrong. And I'd learn, oh, I got a laugh when I dropped that torch. And then I said something witty when it fell. Mm -hmm. So then I started actually, before going on stage, actually writing out my lines, which were just literally, and now I'm going to take my torches, and I would write them down because I didn't want to forget what I was going to say. Yeah. So I would write out like a seven-minute routine word for word on a piece of paper, memorize it, practice it, and then go up and do it. And when I did that, I would just nail it because all my lines were in my head and mm -hmm. But then when things would go wrong, like that's when the comedy would come out and I started realizing like, oh, I can be funny. Yeah, that's when people started saying, hey, do you have a card? And Oh, you were really good. Can you do this thing too? Can you come to my sorority and do a show or right. a, an event? Yes, I can. Sure. <laughs> sure. I'll come over to your sorority and do your show. Yeah, so that was college and wound up moving to Boston for a job. And that's when I kind of met all the performers in Boston. And it was just sort of like going down to Harvard Square to hang out and realizing like, oh, there's a whole crew of people here. And I'd met a few of them people like at conventions and stuff and from word of mouth. And that I ran into Cyrus again at that point because he was a Boston like guy. Right. You know, uh, Faneuil Hall performer. So I, uh, that's when I first saw like the way the pitches ran in Boston and Cambridge and the pitches at the time were? Harvard Square and Quincy Market. Quincy Market. Faneuil Hall, Quincy Market. So I was living in Somerville and I had a job. And my job was actually performing. I was doing this kids educational juggling show, traveling around to elementary schools. And it was just a someone owned the company and booked the gigs. And I literally got like a schedule and I would go out with a partner and we would do these shows. And it was a good gig for me because I was doing education, which is kind of what I studied in college. I was getting experience walking into schools, meeting the principal, setting up a show, doing a show, taking down the show, driving to gigs. Like I saw how it all worked and I was performing and making a hundred bucks a day. It was awesome. Yep. So that was my life for the first year of Boston. But in the same time, I was watching all the street performers and then I spent my winter practicing thinking like next summer, I'm going to go out there and do a street show. Right. I'm going to have a real show. That was the winter of 91. 
And did you dream up all these tricks you wanted to do? Or, and you're... I needed a finale. I needed something unique because everyone was doing a unicycle. Everyone had a unicycle finale, either a tall unicycle or there was one guy walking a rope. But basically everyone had a tall unicycle. And I didn't want to do a unicycle because everyone was doing a unicycle. And I didn't even have a tall unicycle. But I had a bike. I had a BMX bike. So I was like, I'm going to do a BMX bike finale with juggling. And I learned all these ways I could juggle on a bike. I was standing on the handlebars, riding in a surfer, juggling. I would get up in an endo position and do like a balance thing and juggle. The end of the show, I, did, I basically did two finales. I would ride into what's called a cherry picker where I'm hopping on the back wheel, yep. straddling the front. And I did a jump rope. I had a giant jump rope. And then I would finish that and everyone would be like, whoa. And then I'd say, wait, there's one more thing. And I would get out the torches and I would juggle three torches in a cherry picker, hopping and juggling the torches. So it was like a double finale. And instantly, like, I was on the map. People heard about me because it was, oh, my God, he's juggling on a bike. And it was my first summer. I still didn't understand, like, how to do a show. I was following the formula, but I didn't have a character yet. I didn't have... Uh, and what was the formula as you understood it at the time? Get the crowd, do a big opening trick, get the crowd going rah, 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 do your middle, and then introduce the finale, and then make a hat pitch, yeah. and then do the finale. Okay. You yeah. know, the standard mm -hmm. kind of beginning, middle, and end. Yep. I understood that part of the show. But the thing is, I didn't have a character yet. And I was 21 years old. Like, I was just a kid. I didn't have the gravitas, you know, the street performing power. It was just more of like, I had a lot of good tricks and I had a really great pitch. Harvard Square was magical in 1992. It was just easy to do shows. There was a lineup of people. The shows were just killer. But at the time I was so new that I, you know, a hundred dollar hat was like a really good thing for me. So that was my life for the first year. I just did as many shows as I could the first year. And I realized for street performing, it was all about quantity of shows. You just had to do a lot of shows to figure it out. And every show I did, I would learn something new. So I just did as many shows as I could all day long, five, six shows a day. I would just go to any, would, there was the main pitch, but then there was all these other little sidewalks and stuff around Harvard Square. And I would just go down the street and do these little 10 minute shows to learn how to build a crowd, pass a hat, build a crowd, pass a hat. And then I would go to the main pitch on my time and I would do like the big show. Yeah. So that was sort of my first year. I, I did like 300 shows that year in Harvard Square, you know, Great. in a summer, yeah. just over and over and over. And do you remember who else was on the pitch at that time? Yeah. Uh, when I got there, it was 91. Well, I, I got there in 91. I did my first shows in 92 it was my first time I I started the season of 92. And is Harvard Square completely street performer run at that point? Is it just like... Completely. You had to buy a permit from the city. Uh, it was 40 bucks for the year, and you could perform anywhere you wanted. But there was only one pitch for jugglers. There was one main pitch, the Brattle Square corner in Harvard Square. So the main guy on the pitch, the first guy there every day was Mark Farneth. He did a juggling, he double-sticked with a tennis racket, and then his finish was a hemp slack rope with people holding the rope and juggling fire. He was like the main guy. He had been there the longest. And then Peter Panic, who was going by a different name at that time the first year, 
he was a year ahead of me. He started in 91, and I got there in 92. So when I got there, he seemed like an established act, like he was like one of the big names on the pitch. So Peter Panic and Mark and I were kind of the regular three on the pitch. But then there was Ken Zemak, Dan Foley and Joel Harris, the Airborne Comedians, Bob Arena Gravatini, Brady, would show up once in a while. Uh, who else was there? Peter Gross was in town, but he didn't work hard very much. But the main three uh, that first summer was Mark and Peter and I. And that's just like show up and there's a draw for the order? The legality of the pitch was whoever showed up on a pitch could claim the pitch for themselves. If you had a permit, you could literally plant your flag on one corner and say, I'm here for the night. And that was just you, your spot. But that pitch had been for years a shared pitch, like a rotation. And Mark kind of got there and he wanted to do more than one show a night. So he didn't like it when there were six people lined up. So he would always show up first, say, this is my spot. I'm going to share it with two other people. So the first three got to rotate on the pitch. So he wanted to do every third show. So he would start the night and then there'd be two guys. Then he would go and then two more. And then he might get a last show because mm-hmm. he had a family and we understood. But he kind of was very firm about, I'm only sharing with two other people. And if you want five other people, I'm doing every third show. That's how it is. But I'm doing every third show. And it worked that way for a couple seasons. And then there are days when Mark wasn't there or someone else should show up first. We'd be like, okay, anyone who wants to do a show could do a show. Right. We, it was never a draw. It was always like, okay, you go first. You go. First. You, you were here first. When do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah, so I would get about two shows a night on the big spot the first couple years. And were you also on Quincy Market in the... Not yet. Okay. The first year, just Harvard Square. The second year, in 93, I auditioned for Faneuil Hall and I got in. So I started doing Faneuil Hall in the summer of 93, but I was the new guy and I was getting like one show a week there. It wasn't regular. And it was usually like a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon... I didn't do any weekdays because I wanted to be at Harvard Square on every weekday night. I was there six nights a week. Mm-hmm. And the great days were like a Saturday when I could do a one o'clock show at Faneuil and then get over to Harvard by six o'clock to get in the rotation so I could get like three shows in a day. My main thing was I wanted to be at Harvard because in my mind I had more fun at Harvard and I would make, I had done more shows there so in my mind I was making more money there. And Faneuil Hall was much more sterile environment. Like Harvard was a little more like edgy and... And stuff, random stuff would happen because it's the street. It's Yeah, yeah. and Harvard Square just had a, a real mix of characters. I mean, it yeah. was every kind of person walking around. So it was just more interesting. And it was nighttime and it was just exciting. And then Faneuil Hall was always like daytime, afternoon, tourist show. And I didn't see it for what it could be, like like a huge money-making, generating thing. It was always like, well, I'll go do Faneuil and get an easy show in and then come back to Harvard because that's where it was fun. And then Harvard stopped being fun. Like, it started getting a little too edgy and it started being a pain in the butt to, like, wait for a show. Like, I'd get there at noon to do one or two shows at night and then I would get home at midnight. And it was, like, all day long to do one or two shows and it wasn't really productive you know so then I I started getting more Faneuil shows and tuning into the Faneuil vibe and the Faneuil crowd and realizing that I could really 
I could make more at Faneuil. And Faneuil Hall had two-hour slots, so you would, you, would, you would know exactly when you were working. You know, I, I'm like, I know I have from 3 to 5 p.m., and I can do whatever I want for two hours. So I would go there and try and get three shows in two hours, just bang, 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 and then leave. And then I'm like, well, I just did three shows for the day. I'm done. My day's over. I don't have to do Harvard anymore. So I started just doing Faneuil Hall, and then as I got more like veteran status there, and I got more into figuring out the system of calling in and getting spots and waiting for spots, I could do a show like four or five days a week down there, get a spot. And so then it just kind of evolved from like 98 on, I was just doing Faneuil. My last show in Harvard Square was like 1998, just never did it again. And that pitch kind of died for a long time. It just kind of went away. All the performers left, the crowds left. I think it kind of came back a little. I think there are people now doing shows there. But it, for there was a good 10 years where it really was sad down there. There was just no performing happening. And what went wrong? Did like the gap move in or something? Exactly. There were some national chains and stuff there, but it wasn't all that. It was a lot of just specialty shops and things that had been there. And yeah. The vibe was still like very kind of 70s, 80s, kind of like a mix of people. And it was eclectic. You know, there was just good restaurants and everything. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of changed and it became like a giant mall. Like it just, it was all big chains. There's now, I think, three Starbucks in Harvard Square. Like in one block, there's three Starbucks. There's two CVSs in Harvard Square. So it just wasn't fun anymore. And the crowds changed. Like there used to be in the 90s and probably before that in the 80s, just families would come out every night, and I would, it would, you'd start your show at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night, and you'd have an edge of people with kids. Just families would come in, locals would walk down to Harvard Square, and they'd sit down with their kids and watch a show, and then you'd build up the crowd after. And then it just, you'd stop seeing kids there. It was all like, you know, college kids, and it just got a little more edgy and heckly, and it stopped being really fun. Yeah. So Faneuil became more consistent because you always knew it was going to be like a mainly tourist crowd. There were some locals that would come out to watch when I was specifically on. I would see regular faces and people would come up. And knowing your schedule was just awesome. It'd be like, I'm going to be at Faneuil 3 to 5 and then my day is off. Yep. You know, Or I, I have 3 to 5 and then I have 7 to 9 so I can hang out and have dinner and then go back and do a couple more shows. And as my show got better and bigger... I started doing Faneuil Hall on weeknights. Like I would just go down there on nights when no one else would work. I would go down on Sunday nights at 7 o'clock when everyone just assumed the day is over because the sun's going down. And it was just like my little secret. No one wanted the spot Sunday at 7 o'clock. But I would go down there at Sunday at 7 o'clock and all the performers would be gone. There'd be no one there. The crowds would be gone. But then the nighttime crowds would come. And I would just set up and do one show at about 8 o'clock and make as much as I would make on a Saturday in one spot. I would just do one big show, take half an hour to build a crowd, do one like 45-minute show, and it was just like a Saturday spot. And then I would do that Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night. When no one else wanted to work there, I would do one show a night and make my week in three days. Fantastic. And... 
I think that eventually people figured that out and people started trying to get the spots. <laughs> right. but, but I was like, that's all I want. I don't even want Saturday afternoon anymore. I made a policy probably around 98. I don't work Friday nights. Because every bad experience I've ever had street performing has been on a Friday night. <laughs> every time something bad happens, it's a Friday night because people are freaking insane on Friday nights. It's the end of the work week. People are drunk. People are like getting ready for the weekend. It's just like the wackos come out on Friday nights. And every Friday night, I used to have like bad situations happen. So I just said, you know what? Friday night is a night off. That's my night off. I'll work Saturday. I'll work Thursday. But my favorite nights for a long time were Sunday, Monday, Tuesday night. Yeah. I don't think I can let you get away with saying all the bad things happen on Friday nights without telling me at least one of them. I've had two gun experiences on Friday nights. What? Yeah. Where people actually flashed guns in their waistbands. Like, not at me, but like where I was getting a crowd or there were people walking by and I was like, hey, you want to watch a show? And I had like, a, you know, I don't know if it was a gang guy or whatever, but he like whipped up his shirt and in his belt he had a gun and he just like gave me a little F you, like don't talk to me. And I'm like, whoa, you did not have to do that. I'm just talking about doing a show here. Right. Like I just said, hey, do you want to watch a show? Do you want to see my cool tricks? He just like whipped his gun up and like kept walking. And I'm like, that's Friday night. It was a Friday night. I had a guy at a Friday night in Canada come after me because I asked him if he wanted to watch a show. Wow. Like, this was in Canada. It was in Kingston. <laughs> in Canada. I don't It could have been an American. Sure. Because uh, yeah. it was in Kingston. <laughs> but it was a, the Kingston Festival. It was a Friday night. You know, it was crowd building. It's always crowd building when you're, you're kind of in that flow and people yeah. are walking by. You're like, hey, you want to watch a show? Come on up. Stand on the line. And this guy just had a bug in his ass, and he just was like, you better not talk to me. And I'm like, dude, you're walking around at a festival. Look at these thousands of people. I'm a street performer. It's a busking festival. Like, all I'm doing is saying, do you want to watch a show? And he started, he like did a like little stomp at me, and I just kind of was like, what the hell? Like, I'm just, I'm like, there's an edge of people here. There's kids. And then he just came after me. And I just ran. I started running around the circle, the edge. <laughs> and uh, people were coming from like, and then I think other people from other pitches saw this happening because I had my mic on and I was like, hey, hey. <laughs> and I look over and there's like, uh, I remember, this is a, a vision in my mind. I, I remember Colonymous. This, I don't know if you have Colonymous. Yeah, I know. Colonymous <laughs> was like the next pitch over. And all I remember is I was running around the circle with this dude chasing me. He was like a pretty big guy, but he was slow. So I was running kind of like, I wouldn't say teasing him, but I was kind of like running half speed because he couldn't catch me and finally got around the circle. And I met up and at the other edge of the thing was Kalonymous holding a machete. <laughs> Just I'll like protect you. standing there and he's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then the guy kind of took off the other way. But yeah, it was a, a high energy moment. Just all my hecklers and bad, like people who got into it with me. I don't have a confrontational show. Like I'm not Gazo. I'm not. I'm not like trying to rile people up. It's all I do at the beginning is, hey, would you like to stop and watch a show? Yeah. And people just don't like being spoken to on the street. And uh, I just found that always happened on Fridays. So I just stopped doing it. So there you are. You're only doing Sunday, Tuesday, Monday. Yep. <laughs> For the last like five years of my time at Faneuil Hall and street performing, those were my nights. 
and I occasional Saturday if I got a Saturday spot or whatever, but I never asked for weekends anymore. It was just always like, give me Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And then at that time, I was just mainly doing gigs. I was traveling, doing festivals at the time, but my only street was Faneuil. My local like street pitch was Faneuil Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Right. When did you start getting festivals? Or, I mean, did you know that the world of street performing outside Boston existed? Like, I'll tell you another Cyrus story. Oh, okay. <laughs> this all comes back to Cyrus. <laughs> so Cyrus was the first guy I ever saw street perform. Then I went to Boston, and he was still kind of, he was kind of a dick to me for a while. I mean, if you don't know him, he's the self-proclaimed most hated man in show business. Right. And he loves that kind of people hate me. Like, that's kind of his thing. So I just let him be that guy. I didn't interact with him at all. And then one day we were at a gig. It was like a festival thing, like a local festival. At that time I had had one summer of street performing and it was August. I wouldn't say a summer. I had May, June, and July of street performing under my belt. But at that time I had kind of made a little splash in town. Like I was doing the bike finale. People started to know me. And I was at this thing and Cyrus walked up to me and he said, Hey, what are you doing this weekend? I was like, well, I'm just going to do Harvard. I don't know. And he said, do you want to do a, a busking festival? And I'm like, a what? <laughs> uh, and he's like, it's the busker carnival in Canada. I just, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I've never been to Canada. I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, it's a thing. It's like street performing, but it's in Canada and there's a festival and you fly up there and you do your show on the street in Canada. And I'm like, I guess it sounds cool, but I'm not qualified for that. That sounds official. Like, And he's like, no, no, no. I got the gig. I'm supposed to be there, but I don't want to go there because there's going to be a whole bunch of people there I don't want to see. <laughs> that was the story. So I'm like, I don't know what any of that means, but how do I do this? And he's like, I'm going to call them up. I'm going to tell them I can't make it. You got to go do it, and you're going to take my ticket, and you're going to go up there and do it. So somehow it worked out in the next like 24 hours, I packed a bag, I got a plane ticket that said Cyrus Koski. I went to the airport and I got on a plane and I flew to Toronto and got picked up and went to Waterloo and did the Waterloo Busker Carnival in 1992. <laughs> My name was not in the program, his name was in the program. I was just the guy who showed up, I was Jim the Juggler, did my thing. And then I got on a plane and I flew home with his ticket. <laughs> and then I landed and I was like, I just did a festival in Canada. That was my first experience. And did you not have to show ID at the airport? It was 1992. I don't know what, how. I just said, look, I got this ticket and it's another guy and I'm just flying to Canada and he gave me his ticket. I don't know how it worked. And this is also a funny thing about that flight was I was going to Canada and I was I, my finale at the time was um, fire juggling on my on my bike. Mm -hmm. I had the bike and I was doing the torches and I specifically liked using lamp oil for my torches. I didn't like the kerosene or the Coleman fuel and I didn't know if I could get the lamp oil in Canada. Canada so, famously being a lamp oil desert. I didn't know. I was 22 years old. I didn't know. So I'm like, I need to bring my lamp oil. So I put some lamp oil in a Nalgene screw-on cap bottle. Sure. And I packed my bags and I thought to myself, I shouldn't put this in my checked bag because of the pressure change. It might blow up or something. Yep. So I should just keep this in the cabin on my carry-on. So I put a bottle of Nalgene 
lamp oil in my carry-on bag with my torches and my machete, and I walked on the plane, and uh, I flew to Canada with that in my bag, and I think they asked me, what's with the knife? And I'm like, it's just a juggling knife. And I just got on the plane with it. I don't know how it did it. And I flew to Canada with a torch, a knife, and kerosene in my carry-on bag. <laughs> and I got through immigration. Yeah, of without, yeah. I didn't even have a contract. I didn't have any. I just, I got through immigration somehow with Cyrus Kosky's plane ticket. Yeah. How did that work? Yeah. I don't remember it. That's bonkers. And then I flew home, and I had done a festival. And while I was at that festival, that's when I heard about another festival and someone saw me. It was like one of those word of mouth things. And I got a call and then uh, I wound up going back the following year to, I think it was Hamilton. Mm -hmm. It was a little street festival in Hamilton. And when I was at Waterloo, there was, uh, who was there? Glenn Singer was there. Peter Gross was there. Bob Debris was there. Yeah. Who later became Flying Bob. Who else was there that year? Love 22, the Key West people were there that Cyrus did not want to see. So Love 22, Tim Eric. But that was a fun year because I had never done a festival. So I'd made my biggest hat ever. It was just like a cool experience. Then I went to Hamilton the next year. And that's where I met the three Canadians. Actually, no, I'm sorry, the Rubber Chicken Show, who became the three Canadians. Eric and Derek and North were there. Flipside from Scotland were there, and uh, um, Flying Bob was there. There's like a running thing through every festival I ever have done. Flying Bob has been at the festival. Right. Like we're on the same rotation. Yeah. He's been at every one. He was at my first one. He was at my last one. Yeah. So Flying Bob was in Hamilton. Bob Cates. Um, was he Indiana Bob at the time? Yes, he was Indiana Bob. Right. Indiana Bob, the Rubber Chicken Show. I think Flying Bob was still Bob Debris, but he, that was the first year he had done his wire. The first right. time I saw him in 92, he was doing a unicycle finale. Right. And he was Bob Debris of Flying Debris. Yeah. And then he became Flying Bob a few years later. So, yeah, I saw a lot of these guys and met a lot of these. Oh, and uh, that's where I met Bill Ferguson. Right. Was in Hamilton. And in Hamilton, that was when Bill Ferguson, thank you, Bill, was the first guy to sit me down and say, you know, there's festivals all over the world, and yeah. there's festivals all over Canada. Would you like to have the list? And I'm like, excuse me? He's like, well, I've got the list of all the festivals. I can, I can fax it to you. I was just like, yeah, I'll take the list. So I got home, and there was a fax from Bill with a list of all the festivals in Canada and the contacts. So that was 1993. And I started mailing out promo kits, you know, to the festivals. And I just didn't know that there was a circuit. Right. You know, I didn't know there was a Halifax and an Edmonton and a Vancouver and a Ottawa. And I didn't know. All I knew was, like, I got a call and I went to Hamilton for a show. So Bill introduced me to the world of, oh, there's festivals and producers and you should know these people. And no one had mentioned that to me the first couple years of performing. (laughs) Let's, Let's keep it a secret from Jim. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when I first mailed a kit to Edmonton and I didn't know who Dick Finkel was. And I just was like, well, it's on the list. I'll mail a kit. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what Halifax was. And what were you mailing? Like a VHS, I assume? VHS tape and a folder with my bio, like paper, just mailing paper. Yeah. This was 1993, four. 
And I think I got a call back from Dick Finkel, like, thanks for your video. I really enjoyed it, but we don't need any jugglers this year. Try again next year. Like, okay, that was nice. Thanks for calling me. Yeah, so then I did Kingston a couple years later. I went back to Waterloo in 94. At that point, I was getting a little more like I had an act. You know, like I actually knew how this was working. And I still was Jim the Juggler. I didn't have the whole the gym show thing yet. I didn't have a consistent look or costume or props or promo. Like, it was all random. I just was like, I'd wear whatever I wore that day. And so that was 94. 95 was foggy. <laughs> 96, I went back to Waterloo. And that's when I first got really serious about wanting to do the big ones, like Edmonton and Halifax. And I got, in 96, I got uh, Windsor. Mm-hmm. Which was like, at that time, was a satellite Halifax festival that Kim was running. Yep. And Windsor was like the test bed for Halifax. You had to do Windsor and have Kim see you before you could do Halifax. So I did Windsor and Kim was there. And at the end, she's like, okay, would you like to do Halifax? And I was like, yeah. She said, okay, next year. Great. So that was how I got Halifax. And then I finally got the call from Dick. I think I was like a cancellation or something and Dick called me and he's like, I think you're ready to come to Edmonton now. I've heard good things. So I went up to Edmonton in 97. So same year you got them both. I did Halifax and Edmonton the first time the same year. Right. And it was a black and white contrast between festivals. Yeah. You know, going from Edmonton to Halifax was like night and day. Yeah. That's the same experience. And again, it was sort of like a new world, like a new level of busking festival that I knew was serious. Like I knew this was like the big one. So I flew up to Edmonton. I was very excited. And I didn't know anything about the festival, really. I heard you got treated really well and the crowds were great and it was 10 days. But I didn't know anything about the details of it. So I got to the hotel to check in and I got to the front desk and I'm like, hey, you know, Jim from the gym show, checking in from my room. And I just like, do we have singles or do we have roommates? And the guy's like, oh, you have a roommate. And your roommate is, uh, he looks it up, uh, Robert Nelson. <laughs> so I just was like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. this is my first big festival. And I just, I've only heard about this guy. I've only really ever heard about how he is on stage. I don't know anything about Robert Nelson. I only know the stories, the notorious stories of him. So I'm thinking my first big, awesome festival experience is I'm going to be living with this guy for 10 days. It's like, oh, like just deflated. I didn't know anything about him. So I got my stuff, got my key, went up to the room. I get up to the room and I knocked. I'm like, he's going to be in here. I don't want to just walk in. So I knocked on my room door (laughs) that I'm staying at for 10 days and the door swings open And it's this dude wearing just briefs, just underwear briefs. And he's like, hey, you must be Jim. Yeah, I'm Jim. And he shook my hand. He's like, come on in, you're staying here. So we went in and I'm kind of quietly dropping my bags. And he's like, so you're from Boston? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he said, you know Cyrus? (laughs) So Cyrus comes back into the whole world here. He's like, you know Cyrus? And I don't remember what I said, but what I said was the thing that made me realize that we were going to be friends Mm -hmm. at that moment. I must have said something like, yeah, what a dickhead, or yeah, 
whatever I said about Cyrus, he smiled and he kind of like gave me that nod like, you're going to be all right. You know, we're going to be friends. So that was it. And from that moment on, we were buddies. You know, like two days later, we were doing a team show on the square in Edmonton. He saw my act. He brought me back to the room and he's like, wow, like your show was really refreshing. Like I hadn't seen anything like that. And, you know, you you just had original stuff. And he was really talking to me and like giving me all this advice. And no one had ever sat me down and done that. Like no veteran act who I had respect for had ever sat me down and said, good show. Like I really liked that part of the show. Like he watched me. And he's like, we got to do a team show. We should do a team show tomorrow. I want to do something with you. It was just the most flattering thing. So I had an amazing 10 days with him. And that was the year we did Checkerhead Wedding for yep. the, the late night show. And Robert and I were both in the show. And uh, we just had a real great bonding experience that 10 days. And we were just good friends, like respectful friends for, for the rest of it. But yeah, it was that was my experience in Edmonton. Just fantastic time, just hospitality, like the hang was amazing. The performers there were just legends, you know. It was the Flying Dutchman and Checkerboard Guy and Robert Nelson and I think Flying Bob was there too. You're right, of course. You know, he was yeah. there. It was just a big great time. And I felt like for the first time like I was at a place where these legends were. I was part of the cast of this thing, like yeah. that I'd never been in that place before so that was the year like you know i felt like all right i'm in this club now i'm a performer now i made it to this level yeah and then i went from there to halifax (laughs) (laughs) and i don't want to say anything bad i i I, yeah halifax was not a good experience for me it was the opposite of edmonton that's what i'll say like the shows were a grind the hospitality was weak it was just a bad not my cup of tea but I did it got through it and I met a lot of great people there I would say that the worst part was the organization of everything the crowds were fine the city was beautiful the performers were all cool but I just felt like treated very unprofessionally for 10 days you know so I didn't have a fun time there I did have a fun time I didn't professionally I did not have a good time right but it's on your resume and that's the summer that you can say I did Edmonton and Halifax and Halifax right right but 97 was a big year that was the first year I really was the gym show and my act was like a solid like I knew it was something I could sell like it was a product it was a there was a this is my act this is my promo I have a website now I'm wearing my outfit (laughs) I, you know, I had the branding down yeah. in 97. And, and what, what was the finale then? Are you still doing on the bike thing? No. The bike ended in 94. I did the bike the first three years, 92, 93, 94. And the bike got to be too much of a pain in the ass because I was starting to do things where I was doing shows like at a festival and I was on grass and I couldn't do my bike tricks if I was on a hill or if I was in a small stage, like indoor venue. Mm-hmm. You can't do the bike routine. So I started needing a thing to do that I could do anywhere. At the time, also, everyone was still doing unicycles. And I thought, I can do Rollabola. I know how to do Rollabola. So I built a table. And I got to say, I first saw Dan Looker do his Rollabola show in 94, maybe, in Waterloo. And I saw he had a table and he had a whole act on a Rollabola. And I'm like, 
I could do that kind of like I my act is totally different than Dan Looker's, but I saw how he did it and how his table looked, and I went and I built a table because I thought I need a table to do roll of bullocks. I don't want to do it on a trunk, and I don't want to do it on the ground. He was the first guy I saw with a table, yeah. so I built my table in '94, and the first season I was dragging my bike and my props and my trunk and my table everywhere and doing my bike finale and then doing a roll of bola on a table as like my third finale. And then one day I had a gig where I couldn't bring my bike and I just brought the table and it hadn't ever made the money on the street that the bike did. And then one day I got a hat and I was like, that's the same hat I make with my bike. And I didn't use my bike. Yep. I don't need a bike anymore. So I just like axed it right out of the show and that's it. And then I only did the table after that. And the other thing is the bike was like, every time I'd finish a show on the bike, I was bruised. I had, my shins were always bleeding, just whacking myself on my bike all the time. And it just was a pain. Mm. So I just stopped using it. And then the table became my thing. It just became like the thing I finished with and the thing I started with. It was my opening and my finale. That's great. So I'd start on the ground, get the crowd, get up on the table, do the five balls, three, four, five balls, and then get down and then finish on the table. So I like that bookends, yep. you know, start high, finish high. So I love my table. It was a good decision at the time. I built one table and then the year later I built a smaller table because I didn't need what I had built. The first you didn't time. need the height or you didn't need the surface area? Surface area. Right. I took like about eight inches off of the width of the table. I realized... Yeah. I built this big table thinking I need I need a big table because what if my roll of bola goes too far or something? Then it, I just the table got to be too big to travel with. Then I just went home and I took my roll of bola, put it on the table, rolled the roll of bola to the edge, and then rolled it to the other edge, and then put a line, and I thought, that's all I need. If I put the cylinder in the middle, I just sliced off that end of the table, and I'm like, I just have to start in the middle, and I roll to the end, and roll to the other end, and that's all I need. And that's all I needed. And then I cut down the width and learned how to do my act on a 25% smaller table, right. which is way easier to carry. Sweet. So, And I think it's around that time that I first ran into you, which would have been the Montreal Juggling Festival. The IJA, like, I don't know whether that was 99. That was 99. Yeah. Yeah. Butterfly was hosting the Renegade. Yep. And you did a one-footed... Roll a bowl of balance and cut a grape or a cherry yeah. or something in yeah. your mouth. Yeah, the grape catch. Yeah, the world famous grape catch. Yep. I was just like that guy. I've never seen anybody do a one footed roll a bowl of thing, and then you do something stupid like catch a grape in your face too. I was wow. That was the first time it had ever been done. <laughs> it was. I just invented it at that festival, <laughs> right. and I was like, I'm going to do a thing. I need something for the renegade, and I had screwed around with catching things in my mouth because I used to catch little pretzels in my mouth when I was in practicing and stuff. And then I needed something, and I couldn't find the little mini pretzels up in Canada, so I just was at a store, and I'm like, oh, grapes will work. So right. I did it with grapes. I have that on video. That's still on my website. It's up online. That was like a really fun night. That yeah, night. it was great. And I got a parking ticket, but that was, <laughs> that was a really fun show. And I, you know, it was just a fun routine. I've only ever done that in performance, maybe two other times. I mean, yeah. it was like a bit for performers. It wasn't anything I would, I guess I could do it in an act, but it was like totally for people who knew. Yeah, for it. people who respect the difficulty of that thing. Yeah. 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 It was a performing performer's performance. You know? <laughs> like I, I knew it would be like, oh, that's impressive, but also like, oh, it's kind of cool. And yeah. 
I couldn't believe it worked. Like I did it and I'd never done it. I had done it on the ground with pretzels, like I said, but I'd never done it on a stage on a table. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite impressive. It was a, it was a little bit sketchy, super memorable, but it's renegade. You got to take a chance. Yeah, absolutely. That was the year. Also, I started trying to get into the college market. 99 was a huge year. I showcased at the college showcases, the NACA showcases. And I booked like 40 dates, my first real big showcase. And so 2000 was like a huge traveling year. I was just in the car all over the Northeast doing colleges and coming home and doing Faneuil. And I was doing festivals still. And I was doing corporate work. Those were like the peak years for me. 99, 2000, 2001, 2 and 3 were just nonstop. Well, where in there did the the music bit? That's I mean, that's one of my favorite bits in the entire world of street performing is that that's that where people walk by and you play their theme song for 18 seconds. Yeah, it's just fantastic. The pedestrian theme songs. Yeah. yeah, that was an accident that happened that turned into an entire bit. And what I used to do is I would open my show, I would my crowd building, which I think is the greatest crowd build that ever existed. I and, would agree. If I, there was a way for you to put it on your tombstone, you should. And I'm not saying this to kind of brag about it, but it was the most effective crowd building machine that I've ever seen or been a part of. I agree. Like, it was magic. Yep. And it was a total accident. I don't even want to take credit for it because it was an accident. I used to start my show and I'd play a little theme song to like my opening music. And one day I went to play my music and I had the wrong track queued up. And I remember the moment I was, I was like, here we go. And I pushed the button and it was the song born to be wild. The opening chords down, 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 like born to be wild started playing. And I kind of let it go. Cause it was a little funny, like, oops. And then the crowd just went nuts. And they were laughing and pointing and like cheering. And I'm like, what is going on? And I turned around and behind me, like 10 feet behind me, passing through the crowd behind me was this gang of like five or six biker dudes carrying their motorcycle helmets, leather jackets, fists in the air, like born to be wild. (laughs) It was like I played the song for them. Yeah. But I wasn't even looking at them. And the crowd went crazy. So I turned around. I let the song play out. And these guys walked by and I'm like... That was magic. That was a total accident. Like, that will never happen again. And then I just went on with my show. And then I went home and I just started thinking about it. And I'm like, how can I make that happen? Because it was the greatest moment I've ever had on the street. So I just always had it queued up. And I always, like, for the next couple days, I went out and I would do my show. And I always glance around and see, like, who's walking by? Like, what would be funny to play? And then I just went through my head and I'm like, all right, I need to go and get a bunch of music on my mini disc that are little clips of music that would be funny on the street to play as people walk by. And in my brain, I'm like, how can I make them walk by to that music? And I was trying to force people to do it in my head. I hadn't done it yet. So I went through my entire music library, all my CDs and records, and I'm like, what would be funny? Like YMCA and... You know, I picked up all these little clips of tunes and I edited them onto a disc. And I just had the disc in my player with my theme song. I'd always have it ready at the beginning of my show, thinking like, maybe someone will walk by and I'll be able to get to the track fast enough and hit play. So the first couple weeks, I got like a couple and it was really awesome, but I didn't know how to get to the track. I had a list of 30 tracks numbered 
and I had the tracks on my mini disc numbered, like one, two, three, four, five, yep. to thirty. So I knew if I wanted to get to the Brady Bunch theme, it was track fifteen. So I'd have to go from one, like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'd have to go one and like hit the button 15 times and get to track 15, hit play, yeah. when a big family would walk by and the Brady Bunch thing would play. So I was doing that for a couple of weeks, and then I'm like, there has to be a better way. But at the time, there was no, like, you didn't, they didn't have portable samplers and battery-powered anything that could do that. And Ed Stander, the furry eggs, the, the glass playing, Ed Stander... I was at a place, a festival or something with him, and he had a mini-disc player that had numbers on it. And I looked at it, and I'm like, what do those numbers do? He's like, oh, those are the track numbers. You can just type in track 13 and hit enter, and track 13 will play. It turns out it was the very original, first-ever portable mini-disc player that ever was made, the Sony MZ-1. It was a battery-powered mini-disc player, and it had a number pad. It looked just like a touchtone phone. It was like two rows of, of yeah. five. It was okay. like one through five and then six through zero. And then a little enter button. So you could literally go track one, five, enter. And right. it would instantly play. And then three, three, enter. And 33 would play. And that was it. I went on eBay. I found one. I got it. And then I'm like, I could get more music now because I all I needed are numbers. And I got 75 tracks of music. I made a little cheat sheet that had all the tunes with the numbers next to them. And I had that in my little case and I had the player and I could just stand there and everyone who walked by, I just had so many tracks that I had them kind of bundled as this is for men walking by who are walking alone. And this is for two women walking by and this is for a family walking by. And this is, you know, if someone's got a cane, you know, I had like an idea of where the tracks were and I could just hit 55 enter, you know, 32 enter and the music would play for them as they walked by. So that's the system I created. But the way I would do it was I would walk out, set up my table, set up my trunk, and plug my thing in, my player, and stand at my table and just stand there, completely silent. I wouldn't say anything. And it would just be that you're on the pitch and there's just a flow, people walking by. No one's watching. And like a dude would walk by, you know, or a guy would go by on a bicycle, and I would play Queen bicycle song. And, you know, he'd go by and it would be like a little treat for him. And he'd be like, hey, that was funny. Like, he played a bike song and I'm on a bike. And then someone else would walk by and I'd play a tune for them, like Macho Man. And then I'd hear a little laugh in the distance. And I'd realize, like, someone just saw it happen. And you could see, like, the gears turning in their head like, I see what you're doing. You're doing a thing. And then I would play another track. And there'd be people walking around that have no idea. It's like, what's this music playing? And then they'd start watching me and they'd see what I was doing and they could see my eyes. And I started saying, just, if you haven't figured it out yet, watch who I'm watching. So I would just look at somebody and I'd have the thing queued up and I'd just hit enter and it would just nail them as they walked by. And then I would go to the next guy and I'd boom. And I got to the point where I could see people coming from a distance. So I'd be like, that's track 15, that's track 45, that's, you know, so I could just go bang, 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 bang as they crossed. And, uh, yeah, and then they have a huge ring of people all around laughing because they were in on a joke. And they were my people. They were We were connected. Mm-hmm. And then I would kind of like wrap it up, do one more, and I'd say, all right, everybody, showtime. And they'd all crowd in and do whatever I said. And they'd sit down and I'd do a show. So 
it was a connection. They were in on a joke. They trusted me. It was a great way to build a crowd. Yeah. And it was the most fun I've ever had. Like it's the most fun thing I've ever done is doing that bit before a show. The show was just like, oh, now I'm going to do a show. But doing the crowd build with that music was the most fun thing I've ever done anywhere on the street and performing. And I did it for about five years. And then I stopped kind of street performing and it kind of went away. And I just haven't done it in a long time. But yeah, I guess it had its roots in, you know, the people do follow mime. People do voices. Lee Ross does a thing where he does voices as people are walking by. He'll do their thoughts. But it was the first time it had ever been technology matched with following. And at the time, it was very like of the time. It was the late 90s. It was pre-YouTube. It was pre-pranks. It was pre-jackass. You know, like those kind of like playing jokes on people in public. It wasn't really a thing yet. And the thing about the bit was it was never mean-spirited. It was always meant to be playful at people. No, there's no victimizing in the... No. No. So uh, it was fun. It was all... It was never like, look at that guy, I'm going to make fun of him and play a song that's like going to bully him or something. It was always like, he was in on the joke too. You know, it was never like, look at that person. He's not going to know I'm going to joke about him and watch me make fun of him. Mm -hmm. He was walking into the space and being part of the show. And they all played along. Either they didn't know it, they didn't hear it or see it. It just didn't register and they just kept walking. Or they got it and played with it and smiled. So it was always positive. And the worst part was when people just didn't get it, the crowd people. And people would start going like, just do your show. You know, like, I'm like, I don't want you in my crowd. I don't want my people. (laughs) Because (laughs) don't start with just do your show. Like, they're like, what are you doing? Just do your show. And I'm like, this is the show. This is part of the show, man. Like, you don't get it yet? Watch. Watch who I'm watching. They just don't get it. Yeah, but that was it. That was the the watch the pedestrian pedestrian theme song, however you want to call it. So that kind of that ended with me. I did it, and I no one else ever did it. I don't think. I, no. I haven't seen it. I haven't heard of anyone doing it. It was a great moment in time, and uh, I'm proud of it. But the thing is, it was it was so fun, like to do it. Like mm-hmm. it was the best time I had. And when I stopped street performing, I missed that part of it. Like I missed doing that little beginning thing. Do you do it in the grocery store mentally? Can you still like, is she really going out? Like do you still? <laughs> that life, yeah. <laughs> now I think for a long time I did. Like I would see people and be like, ah, 34. I haven't done it in 10 years. So I probably would have to refresh my memory on all the numbers. But for a long time, yeah. I get to the point where I could know like three numbers ahead. I'd know what order to do things in and I could really nail people. But yeah, it was good fun. You told me once that you used to do it as your kind of pre-show thing in colleges too, right? Like they make you kind of advertise the show. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, the college market's just very hit or miss. Sometimes you have like mega shows, big theaters, and other times you'd be in a giant theater and 10 people would show up. And you'd just do the show and whatever because you got paid, doesn't matter. But it's just no fun when there's 10 people in a big theater. So they'd always ask you to do a teaser before your show, and it usually involved you showing up at lunchtime or dinner and doing a bit in the cafeteria, and then your show is at 8 o'clock, and you'd like do a little juggling bit in the show and say, hey, big show tonight at 8, come to the student union. And 
So they always ask to do a teaser. It's almost like part of the contract. And I used to go and juggle and walk around for 10 minutes and like, come to the show. And like, it never, no one worked. So then when I started doing the music thing, I realized I could do that in a cafeteria setting. And it was perfect because you had a line of people and you could see the line. I would set up at the end of the chow line where people would take their tray and then walk to their table to go sit down and eat. And I would just sit there with my speaker and my mini display <laughs> and stand there. And people are like, who's that guy? Yeah. You know, I was just wearing street clothes and I'd be sitting at a table or standing at a table with my disc player. And there's a chow line and people are, you know, getting their trays and they walk. They have, everyone has to walk past me. They're forced to. And I have a line of people and I can see everybody. And I already have all their numbers in my head. What I'm going to do for ever, the next 20 people. And then they'd walk by and I'd play the music. And the whole cafeteria would just be roaring. Because they'd all be like watching a show, you know. And they would oh, what's he going to do for her? What's he going to do for that guy? What's he going to do for those two? And, you know, then a teacher would walk by, whatever. And I would just have one for everybody. And I would do it for 15 minutes and then be like, showtime at 8 o'clock. And it would, boom, everyone would come. Awesome. They'd all come. It would be like huge crowds. So that was great for colleges. It was great for street. Couldn't do it at a corporate event. Couldn't do it like... I always wished I could have done that as my show. Do that for half an hour and then pass the hat. But there was just no end to it. There was no finish. There was no, there was no beginning, middle, or end. It was always just like a beginning and a strong middle. And then, okay, now I'm going to do a show. And my show is kind of the end. But I, wished, I always wish I could just do that. Yeah. But there's no money. Because you say, all right, that was the last one. Thank you. And people look at you and go like, you didn't really do anything. Yeah. I laughed for 45 minutes, but you didn't really do anything. That's a weird hurdle to get over. I obviously struggle with that myself because I can entertain people for 40 odd minutes. And then I'm like, I always worry if they're going to have that. He didn't really do anything feeling. Yeah. But you have a pow. That's the yeah. end. Well, that's the reason I have to do that, right? There's a moment where the cabbage is on my head and people are like, well, yeah, that is what he said he was going to do. Yeah. Yeah. But that's it. You have a pow. It's like, yeah. boom, I did what I said I was going to do. I ended. But with the music thing, it was always like, well, I made fun yeah. of people. I had fun. Everyone played along. And then like that last one was really funny. So I'm going to end on that one. Yeah. But no one goes to a stand-up comedy show and goes like, he just talked for 45 minutes. And I had a lot of really great laughs. But he didn't really do much. Right. But when they go to the stand-up comedy show, they don't have to pass the hat at the end. That's true. But they pay in advance. Right. Right. But with the music thing is there's something about it that they there needs to be a reason to pay, like a reason to call at the end or whatever. Yeah. There has to be a pop at the end. Speaking of accidents, you told me once that your whole crotching yourself with the roller bullet, you actually almost did it once. Is that correct? Yeah, I've had a few hits. <laughs> <laughs> there's been a few hits where I tickled the ivories. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, Generally, uh, I've got a couple inches of clearance there with the board, so I can whack myself pretty hard on my inner thigh, and it looks really convincing. But every time it's been, if it's wet, and I have my feet are wet, like if it's a damp day or humid or a slightly wet raining day, and I'm on the board, my sneakers are squeaky and slipping a little bit on the board. And what happens is my foot, if, if my foot is solid on the board, I know exactly where to let go to let it rip up and hit me. And the board is consistently stops. On a wet day, 
my feet slip just slightly and the board actually hops. It hits, oh, right. it hits and then springs up. So I get the whack, but then the board is traveling up. Yeah. So I get also poked yeah. from the bottom. <laughs> Slap and poke. And that <laughs> is when the rest of the show is a little bit like, I got to finish, but it's a little bit more sketchy. Right. Yeah. A bit squeaky. Yeah. I've had a couple falls. Actually, I've fallen three times off my table and three times have been in Canada <laughs> at festivals. Wow. Yeah. And I think twice was in Windsor. Right. Two times I've fallen in Windsor from my table. So you should never go to Windsor, Canada on a Friday. Exactly. <laughs> and do, try and do a show. Total, I'll probably not make it home. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a few falls on the table, but I usually bounce off the table before I hit the ground. I never like go whoops, fall and like fall in an arch, like all the way to the ground. Like it's always, I fall straight down, bounce off the table and then hit the ground. So it's like a double hit, but I've never broken a bone in my life, knock on wood. Hmm. And I've never needed stitches in my life. Right. And I've been pretty, pretty lucky. Did have a really bad head injury in Canada though. That was my worst Injury. Um, was that in Edmonton? Yeah. In the Midnight Show? Yeah. When you yeah. fell off a milk crate? Yeah, I fell off a milk crate. Escaping from a wet paper bag? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that was almost like a career-ending kind of concussion. Like, that was a... Really? Serious. Yeah. And I didn't even know it at the time. Like, I didn't know what happened. I was doing a, a rip, you know, like a taking the piss out of a straitjacket escape. And yeah. I was escaping from a wet paper bag. But I was doing it inside a paper bag, like a big lawn bag, and it was a moistened bag, and I stood on a milk crate to make it more dangerous, and I was inside the bag, and I was doing an escape. And I took a fall thinking like, oh, it'll be funny if I fall off the milk crate and hit the stage. And like, I can fall off a milk crate and land and not get hurt, but I fell in a way where I was blind because I was inside a bag. Yeah. So I, my balance was off, and the first thing hit the ground was my shoulder. I was trying to fall and hit like sort of side, hip, shoulder, kind of roll off the milk crate. Yeah. And I was off in my horizon. And I remember my shoulder hit first and then my head snapped to the ground and bounced off the ground. And then my body came down. And I was inside a bag, so I was blind. All I just remember was black. And my head was just like ringing. And I got out and I finished and took a bow. And then the next day, I had one more show because that was the Saturday night, late yeah. night show. And then I had Sunday on the square and I had to do my last like Sunday show, afternoon show. And I remember that show because I went out and I was like, I feel kind of groggy. Like I, it's been a long festival. It's been 10 days. I've been drinking beer. Like I'm going to do it because it's the last show. But I remember feeling just off. And then I went out to do my show and I couldn't do the five balls. I couldn't do five clubs. I dropped everything. I did the finale, but I finished and I'm like, that just felt weird. Like, why couldn't I do five balls? And then I flew home that day, got home, and I just realized I was like really tired. And then I remember I'm like, I think I got a concussion or something. And I slept for days and then for like a week, I couldn't do five balls. It's never happened to not be able to do five balls. It's like not being able to tie your shoes. And uh, I slowly got back to five balls, but I couldn't do five clubs for like a month. I was off. Like I felt drunk for like a month. And um, 
it came back, but it was really scary. I was like, I never want to hit my head again in my life. Right. So now I'm like super careful about just daily activities because I've had a few like bumps, like I bumped my head on a tree or, yeah. you know, you get out of the car and you bump your head and I get that like twinge of like drunk feeling. It's like for a minute and yep. then it goes away. But I'm like, that's a concussion injury, whatever you call it with the boxers and football players get. Yeah. So I know that if I hit my head again, it gets progressively worse. Sure. Like the recovery time is longer. So yeah, I'm like really careful about my head now. And I recommend being careful about your head. Sure. As a parent, as a friend. Little PSA for you. Yeah, that's wear your helmets. Wear your helmet. Don't be stupid. Don't escape from a wet paper bag in Edmonton (laughs) on a Friday. On a Friday. (laughs) I think that was a Saturday. It was a Saturday, yeah. yeah. But yeah, anyway, so that was um, my injury time. Those are my Mm. worst injuries. Yeah. What else is there to talk about? Well, what now? I mean, do you consider yourself fully retired from... This universe? Busking? Our universe? Yeah. I went back and did some busking in 2012. My last festival I ever did was in 2008. It was in Shrewsbury. You were there. Mm-hmm. Bill Ferguson yeah. Festival. Flying Bob was there, of yeah. course. Flying Bob. So I went to England. It was my first time performing in England. So I was like, I got the call and I thought, I want to go to England. I've never been there and I think I should go do that festival. So I did it. And it was kind of a rough one for me. By the end, I figured out the crowds and I was okay. But the first couple days of a three-day festival were rough. But I had a lot of fun. You know, there were some great people there. And uh, that was my last busking festival that I did. But I I had already stopped performing at Faneuil in 2006. Then in 2012, Al convinced me to come out of retirement for the Faneuil Hall first ever fall festival that he dreamt up and convinced them to have. So I went down for the month of September. I did three weekends at Faneuil. And then the last weekend was this festival. But I said, I'll do the festival weekend, but I need a couple weekends to kind of get back in shape. So they gave me a couple spots on two prior weekends. And then the last weekend was the festival. And going back to Faneuil for those shows, the first day was just like a total train wreck. I just was like, I forgot all my lines. I don't know how to get a crowd anymore. I didn't make any money. And then the second day was like, okay, now I got my lines back, but I still don't know how to get a crowd anymore. And then the second weekend, it got better. And then at the festival, I had some good shows. But the thing that made me realize was all the reasons I stopped street performing. I had some good shows, but all of the things about that experience reminded me of why I don't do it anymore. And it was mainly the, for me personally, the uh, the noise, the sounds, like perform like I for, from 2006 to currently, like every gig I do is basically in a controlled environment, indoor venue or even outdoors, but controlled with a crowd that's there to watch me. And I don't want to sound like spoiled, but I just got in the habit of doing a show for an audience that wanted to see me, and then going back to the street and realizing like, oh no, you have to hold the crowd. Yeah. You know, it's hard and it's hard with distractions and noise and flow of people going by and cobblestones and dirty things and litter and uh, dirty children yeah. touching your props yeah. and sticky things on the ground and all these things. I'm like, yeah, I just don't miss this. I just haven't done a street show 
since 2012. Right. So I'd say I'm no longer a busker. It's in my blood. And I know I, if I wanted to ever had the urge, I could go back and do a street show. Yep. But You know how once you're elected president, they just keep calling you president? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> but after you're done being president, you never want to have that job again. It's like, I did that. I hit my peak. I did my, yeah. I've reached the goal. I've done the job. Mm-hmm. Now I'm on a, a lifetime speaking tour with my favorite secret service guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm happy. Like, I feel like I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish. There's nothing in the busking world that I didn't do that I ever thought I'd want to do. You know, I did it all. I did everything I wanted to do. I never had a thousand dollar hat, whatever. I, you know, I yeah. never had like the mega hat, but I was fine with that because I don't care about like those are the things like the big milestones everyone wants to check off on their right. street performing. The sort of the street performer merit badges. Yeah. But I did, I mean, I traveled around the world. I went all over. I did all the shows I wanted to do. I met all the people I wanted to meet. I shared stages with people I looked up to. And uh, yeah, I feel like I did everything I wanted to do. If there was anything I still wanted to do, I would go try and do it. But I'm happy with my career. Cool. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. And just a quick shout out to George Gilbert for becoming our latest Patreon contributor. If you find value in this podcast, it really is easy to become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we can improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well then, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just to bookend things nicely, we opened with that aha moment when Jim saw his very first street show. We thought we'd close with what he grew to understand a busking show really is. That's the thing about street, is like you're interrupting their day, you're entertaining them for a set amount of time, and then you're convincing them to pay you. But it's all an interruption. Like, they didn't expect to be there watching a show. And if you can stop them and entertain them and convince them to pay you, like, that's a successful show. Like, you just did it. That's busking. On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, Mike Wood, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, 
please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. Sure. <laughs> I'll come over to your sorority and do your show.